Hi there, local citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I'm your host, Florence Adu. I'm coming to you on a summery Brooklyn afternoon, and my guest is coming to us from a little bit down south. <laughs> that's that's south, meaning our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the DMV area. And she is a colleague of a recent guest of ours, and I was so excited to invite her to come and give another perspective of the type of work that they both do and, and her own unique take on everything. And so she is the National Democracy Institute Senior Advisor for Political Party Programs. She provides thought leadership and analytical expertise to shape the design and implementation of the Institute's political party programs worldwide. Previous to joining NDI, he worked in international humanitarian assistance, developing funding proposals, and overseeing the procurement and shipment of relief materials to a variety of countries in crisis. You know, that seems like such a huge area of need right now. And so we're happy to have this conversation with Seth Ashiagbor. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Florence, and thank you for the invitation. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. So let's jump right in. Where are you from? Where are you local? And what is your craft? Okay, so I'm going to take this in to, in uh, two chunks okay. uh, because it, it gets a little bit complicated, but that's, that's partly why we're here. So yeah. <laughs> I am from uh, Ghana and the United States. My parents were from Ghana. I partly grew up there, but I was actually born in the United States. Okay. That said, I didn't actually live in the United States till I started my, um, till I entered the workforce. Mm. So I attended college and grad school and parts of high school in England while living in Switzerland. Mm. So I guess to summarize all of that, I consider myself a Ghanaian American, but I'm also very much aware of the fact that because I didn't grow up here in the United States, I am a bit of a uh, transplant despite being an American citizen. So in terms of uh, where I'm local, mm -hmm. as you can probably guess from my background, um, that has varied over time. <laughs> but I would say that currently I am mostly local to the Washington, D.C. area, but um, I live in the Maryland um, suburbs. Uh -huh. Um, but I'm also still partially um, local to Accra, Ghana. Okay, nice, nice. And what is your craft? Um, so I had to spend a lot of time um, thinking about this. And I think what I settled on is that my, my craft is really um, unpacking complicated issues. Mm. But I also think of it as a quest. So it's there are always new complicated problems to resolve or old ones that don't necessarily come to your attention till somebody pushes them um, your way. It's also a quest because it's something that I see as a collaborative effort. And I, I tend to be a processor of information and I process that information by reading also by but also by engaging others. And so that that craft and that quest involves sharing information in ways that I think will help people enhance their own um, impact, but also taking in information, bouncing ideas off of 
colleagues and peers outside my own organization. Mm, okay, nice. And so those are the, the skills or approaches that I'm currently applying to my, my job at NDI. Okay. So before we get into what you're doing now at NDI, tell us a little bit more about how it was to be, I'm assuming you're, you're, you're a daughter of diplomats or a diplomat with your... Uh, kind of. I mean, I think my, my mom, both of my parents would describe themselves as uh, civil servants. Oh, okay. um, I think dad did work at the for the United Nations. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And my dad was a charmer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so definitely had a lot of those instinctive uh, diplomacy skills. And I mean, I think obviously working for the UN, yeah. you would think of him as a diplomat. But I think that really they thought of themselves as as civil servants okay. more than more than anything else. OK. Yeah. OK. And so and both economists. OK. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. So then growing up um, with I want to say your your adolescence outside mm-hmm. of of Ghana and in Europe. Tell us a little bit more how that transition was, because I always you know, I often talk to people who come as adults to or leave their countries as adults. But as an adolescent, finding your CIs in another culture. How, how was that? So that, that's a great question. And I will say that while there was some trauma, which is probably a bigger word than I want to use, mm-hmm. for me, it was actually overwhelmingly a positive um, experience. There were challenges, of course, mm-hmm. and we'll probably come back to, to, to this in the discussion. But I remember, um, I think, more about why we left Ghana than I do about challenges okay. um, um, when, when we did leave. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think that, you know, um, one of the things that I think did help me was the fact that boarding school is very common in Ghana yeah. or was very common. And so it was it was and still is a rite of passage right. at the age when we left. Right. So in America, where I think boarding school isn't as common, oh, exactly. and I think often the perception is, OMG, yeah. do you feel like your parents sent you off because they didn't love you? Right. I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> right. So I think I'm always a little bit surprised when that's where people start yeah. uh, with boarding school. Yeah. So I think for me, it's like I was going to go to boarding school anyway. anyway. Uh-huh. It just ended up being boarding school in England versus boarding school in Cape Coast, um, which is where I would have ended up um, going to boarding school. I mean, I think that there were um, things that I had to adapt pretty quickly to that I think have probably uh, stayed with me. And I think some of it I've learned that I do probably by instinct right now, Mm. just in terms of pronunciation of Mm. different words, Mm -hmm. accents, you know, Mm -hmm. and then things like fitting in from a clothing perspective. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have never been the trendiest uh, kid on the block. Mm -hmm. I think I very much grew up with a sense of you wear what suits you, but I think what suits your body. But at the same time, I think that at that age, it was sort of very conscious of the fact that some of my clothes looked rather different okay. from some of the other kids that who were my, my, my boarding school. Yeah. But I think the way that I remember it, you know, a lot of it was probably the same stuff that all kids go mm-hmm. through anywhere in the world in terms of making new friends, trying to find your place in terms of, are you with the cool kids? Mm-hmm. Are you a nerd? Are you, you know, um, somewhere in between? I will also say that thanks to my parents and extended family, I had a wonderful support network. Mm -hmm. The boarding school that I went to, my sister also attended. Mm -hmm. 
and she was already at that school when I got there. So, you know, other than the usual sibling stuff in terms of generational, well, I shouldn't say generational differences, but she is seven years older than me. Oh, okay. So we overlapped at the same school for about a year. And even though my parents were in a different country, we had a close family, including an aunt who was living in London um, at the time. Got it. So I, I, um, from that perspective, I did have a tremendous support network. Mm-hmm. And there were other international students at my boarding school right. as well. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that was a softer landing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Quite nice. Quite nice. So what inspired you to venture out of Europe and come to the U.S.? So, I mean, it sounds a bit silly um, <laughs> in retrospect, but I think I... I knew I was an American citizen, but it wasn't something that I, it it didn't really have any, a practical application in my life in the sense that, as I mentioned, grew up somewhere else, went to school um, somewhere else. And I think after approximately 10 years in England, Mm -hmm. I, you know, had had a good experience, Mm -hmm. but I was ready for something a little bit different. Mm -hmm. I wasn't necessarily ready to move back to Ghana. Mm -hmm. I knew that I wanted to work in international relations slash international um, development. And so coming to the United States and the D.C. area um, made sense Mm -hmm. because I I, I, because I'm a citizen. So I didn't need to worry about, you know, work permits and um, that sort of thing. But also, again, I had family here, Mm -hmm. you know, extended aunts and uncles, my sister, once again, had preceded me here, but she was actually um, in the Boston area for, for grad school. Okay. okay. So I came here with the, the idea of I'm going to see what happens and, you know, take it from there. Okay. Okay. So you, you didn't know what you were going to do. So what, so what did you land in when you first arrived? Well, so particularly given in the context of all the security um, issues that we deal with in the current environment, and particularly 20 years after 9-11, I came to the United States without a social security number Mm. uh, in my early 20s. (laughs) Um, So that got figured out, obviously. (laughs) But it was just interesting. (laughs) Some of the questions I faced about why someone my age didn't have um, a social security number. So my my first employment opportunities had nothing to do with international um, development. It was just any paying job. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So um, I basically ended up doing administrative work for an environmental testing firm, Mm -hmm. which was not international at all. But they looked at my resume and I think took me on faith that, you know, my social security number was coming. Um, and so I did that for a few months and then I figured out that, figured out or confirmed that that wasn't really my calling. Um, and so I, uh, decided to head in other directions that signed up with a temp agency, Mm -hmm. um, to do, um, office support which is how I ended up at the World Bank. Oh, okay. You know, it's so interesting because I know a few people that that's how they ended up at the World Bank, just doing mm-hmm. temp stuff. So that's, yeah, that's a tip. If you're looking to get with World Bank, maybe it's- Well, this was a while back. So who knows how things work these days. I think it's still <laughs> a little bit that way because this is as recently as like maybe three years ago. Mm-hmm. So, so, okay. So you ended up yeah. at the World Bank. 
I ended up at the World Bank and I worked with a wonderful team. Mm-hmm. I still remember and have tremendous um, respect for some of some of the folks I, I worked for. Mm-hmm. But I think part of the reason I ended up leaving the bank was that given how I entered the bank, I was a little bit concerned that I would get pigeonholed. Okay. As more of an administrative um, type person. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I decided to seek opportunities that would provide me more program experience, Mm -hmm. um, so so to speak. So I ended up working for a small consulting firm that was helping a lot of church-based organizations expand their funding base, Mm -hmm. including by um, moving into programs that were funded by different agencies in the United States government Mm -hmm. or elsewhere. So Mm -hmm. a lot of these church-based organizations had a long history of humanitarian and development assistance, but primarily based on private fundraising. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So how long did you stay in that space before... Gosh, Mm. I think it was probably a couple of years. Again, this was all um, quite a bit ago. And then I think my next calculation or move was that I needed working experience overseas. Okay. So I started looking for opportunities to actually be based in another country working there. And so that's how I ended up in um, Malawi and with NDI. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. So do you feel like from a young age, travel was something that was just in you or you kind of cultivated that over time? I think it was in me and around me. I um, Perhaps I say this because of my Ghanaian part, but mm-hmm. Ghanaians love to travel. Um, and, um, so I think that there was that, but also my, my father traveled a lot for, um, his, his work. So I was used to the, the concept of, of, uh, regular travel and it seemed, um, exciting. So, um, I started doing more of it for work. I mean, I do still enjoy it, but it's just funny now how glamorous it always seems until you see some of the, some of the other side of what goes into it. And I mean, I remember as a young kid and uh, as even a young, a not so young kid, I would just love, you know, sometimes looking at uh, an atlas or a globe and um, just pick a random country and be like, so dad, have you been to this place? Have you been to that place? Okay. You know, so. Okay. okay. So how many countries have you based in? Based in, um, are you counting childhood or not? <laughs> um Okay, let's count childhood, but but more so, yeah. So over over your entire span. Overall, so, so I, I I'll, I'll have to count it out. So okay. apologies to you and to the audience, no. but um, Ghana, okay. uh, Switzerland, and England. I think Switzerland was weird because technically we lived there, but honestly, it was for vacation <laughs> because I was in boarding school. Right, right. Um, and um, the United States. Okay. And Malawi. Okay. And so that's four or five. five. Uh, um, and then Cote d'Ivoire is interesting for me because I was never actually based there. Mm-hmm. But I did go through a phase um, at NDI where I was going there repeatedly okay. for like a month at a time, oh, even okay. though it was over a short period. Yeah. It was over a really interesting and important time in the country's political um, development. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. OK. OK. So tell us more about that. So you you speak French. I'm assuming. I do. Yes. It's rusty now because I don't use it as much, but. But you, 
I'm near fluent. Okay. So it, it can come yeah. back. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. All I need is a month in Paris. Right. So. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Or Senegal, maybe. Right. Dakar. Yes. Dakar, yeah. 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 <laughs> so, so what was the work, the project? So we'll go into a little bit of NDI work, but then I want to hear a little bit more about your, you your work with humanitarian assistance, um, mm-hmm. especially now that we're in this time where I think it's coming to the fore that we need and have a lot of humanitarian crises. I mean, it seems like there always are, but particularly yeah. now, that's something that's going mm-hmm. on. So, so Cote d'Ivoire, what was what was that about? Um, so, Cote d'Ivoire, at least, or at least at the time that I worked on it, was in the at the from 1999 mm-hmm. to into the early um, 2000s. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, I was already at NDI. So not so much working on humanitarian assistance, but working on issues of democratic development. And I think it was, as an outsider, sort of observing um, what happened, I think it was interesting to see how things evolved politically. I think first from some of the concerning signs in terms of increased tension between different ethnic groups, Mm -hmm. how different political leaders were using that for their own political benefit. Mm -hmm. And I think also just some of the early conversations we'd had with some of our partners and our, um, some of our contacts about what seemed to be alarm bells that were ringing very loudly. And often what we heard was, oh, no, 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 this is Cote d'Ivoire. We're a peaceful country. It's all going to be fine. So I think that that whole dynamic of something, this is not going well, and something could very easily happen. Right. And unfortunately, it did in the form of a coup, yes. a civil war, and such. And so I think, you know, I don't certainly don't want to simplify all that is politics in Cote d'Ivoire, but I think that being able to spend time in in Cote d'Ivoire, working on Cote d'Ivoire, talking to different people from Cote d'Ivoire, but also who were working on Cote d'Ivoire at the time, I think I, I feel like I had a relatively close seat to seeing sort of some of the early part of things that are continuing to play out still in Ivorian politics today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's very interesting that you you. So you said there are definitely warning signs. And I, I'm asking a bit of this because we, I think we take for granted the stability, you know, even here in the U.S., you know, the capital was stormed. So democracy is not stable globally as much as we might think it is. And I know that that's, mm-hmm. that is the bulk of what your work is, is to make sure that democracy is something that people have access to and understand. And so when you say that there were warning signs and then the political machinery kind of was zigzagging and circ- circumventing what eventually was for not because it mm-hmm. broke down. What, what were some of the things that you were saying? So um, it's actually interesting because now that I think about it, there's so many parallels to things that we're seeing all over the world today, including here in the United States. Yeah. So at the time, the president of Côte d'Ivoire was Henri Conan Bédier. Mm-hmm. Um, elections were on the um, horizon. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of concerns about whether the elections would be uh, meaningful and provide fair opportunity for different sides to participate. Mm -hmm. At the time, there were also questions about whether Alassane Ouattara, now president of Côte d'Ivoire, met the criteria to run um, for president. Mm -hmm. And so you began to see, at the same time, you saw 
political leaders begin to use that whole concept of Ivoirite. In other words, who is really an Ivorian versus who is not. Mm-hmm. And, and so one of the questions that was being asked about Alassane Ouattara was, you know, is he really Ivorian versus from Burkina? Mm-hmm. So a lot of questions about identity that we're still seeing not only in Cote d'Ivoire, but all over the world yeah. um, in politics today. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was, quote unquote, bad enough that that was happening um, in terms of the elections. But you could see that also beginning to trickle down mm-hmm. and to permeate other things. So some of the even some of the groups that NDI had worked with were beginning to take sides mm-hmm. in terms of and, and so that the, their work was beginning to become tainted based on where they stood um, on on this issue. And um, you also saw more and more political leaders, to some extent, beginning to double down on that whole concept of Ivoirite. And that basically ended up exacerbating tensions that already existed in Ivorian society. So... The coup ended up happening. I remember conversations, um, which (laughs) to some extent are actually similar to the conversations about the recent coup in Guinea, where there were those who welcomed the coup because their perception was that Robert Gueye Mm -hmm. was going to, was really more of a savior um, of the nation. Um, I I guess you could say the same about some of the ways in which Rawlings was welcomed by some. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that there was that debate of, is Robert Gueye really a savior who could be welcomed? He said that he's not planning on running for office and that he's just here to clean things out and then he's going to exit left stage. Well, that didn't quite happen, right? And then in the meantime, you know, ethnic divisions are being are, are, are being exacerbated um, and fueled to some extent by various politi- political leaders. Yes. Right, right, right. So I find that tribe is the common theme that seems to be in the way of unity Mm -hmm. across the board. And so do you see a a democracy that really respects and operates in the context of like human tribalism? Because that's basically how we all identify. And and so do you see a way? So... uh, um... That's a great question. Um, I think that I, I do think that it's worth spending a few minutes on the concept of tribe, right? Mm-hmm. And I think tribe obviously means Eve Fanti, you know, um, or or whatever. But I, but I'm I'm assuming from the way you frame the question that you mean tribe in in different. Yes. In, in a more broader um, sense, because in other countries or in some countries, the schisms or division are based on race, religion and so forth. Right. So, I mean, I think that we, I think that there are different things that are being attempted, um, some more successful than than others. And so I think that at this point, we probably know more <laughs> about what enhances that tribalism mm-hmm. versus a silver bullet that, mm-hmm. you know, can be uh, fired out, so to speak, to to fix um, all of these things. And so I think some of the things that have been tried with mixed results are legislation. So um, in my area, which is political parties, I think a lot of countries in sub-Saharan Africa, but also parts of Asia and other parts of the world, have legislation that straight up bans you can't have an ethnic-based party. 
Yeah. And there are different requirements to ensure that your political that all registered political parties have quote unquote national character. And I'm using quotation marks um, and then realizing (laughs) that your audience can't see me. Um, But I think um, a disadvantage of that is often enforcement, because I think often what we see is that extensive legislation is written and then it's not enforced. And there's a well-known Ghanaian politician who says, you know, legislation without enforcement is just advice. So that's one issue. Yeah. But I also think that there are broader issues in terms of beyond uh, political party um, re- uh, um, registration and legislation mm-hmm. that define who participates in in what and on what basis. Mm-hmm. So um, thinking about issues around constitutions, for example, and how much part power is concentrated in the hands of the president or whoever the quote-unquote chief executive is in a particular setting, whether it's a prime minister um, or such. How, what is the basis for how elections are conducted? And to what extent does that provide opportunities for different groups to feel that their voice is heard Mm -hmm. um, and included in in different institutions um, and processes? But I think here again, it's about what happens in practice. Um, I think another issue that is very much related uh, to to tribe, and I don't know if you can actually completely separate it out, is issues of economic development, right? right? And so while, yes, in all countries, it's often possible to identify particular groups defined by gender, race, sexual orientation, who are disadvantaged, I think kind of the chicken and egg from a democracy perspective is that Countries with higher rates of socioeconomic inequality are also weaker democracies because it fuels polarization, disenchantment with the system and so forth. So there's that chicken and egg. Yeah. I think um, the last thing that I'll mention for purposes of this discussion, although I feel like you asked me a bit of a PhD thesis type question there, (laughs) (laughs) um, is um, the role of the media um, and I would say also um, disinformation and how Basically, I think the decentralization, if you will, of communication has had significant, has posed significant challenges Mm. for um, how we all see and participate in and process um, information. There have been benefits, but I think that disinformation, I think, has been a significant challenge in terms of what information citizens have about Mm -hmm. what is happening in their own country and in the world, what it is they believe, and um, how that then impacts how they perceive the other, how they perceive the state, um, and so forth. Right, right, right. Well, that was, thank you for that. You did a nice job of summarizing the thesis. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so sometimes my mind just keeps going, and I'm, I'm just so happy to have people who have been thinking and working in these spaces to to have these conversations. So let's put a pin on that and let's ask you one of my weekly questions, which is global speak. So we want to hear what you hear. So I ask you to share a word, phrase, or saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value it as global speak. Gosh, so this is a tough one. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that one of my favorites and I, I don't even know if it actually really meets the criteria, mm-hmm. is talk is cheap. Okay, no. Um, and so <laughs> <laughs> that's something that I think applies pretty much anywhere in the world. Yes. That it was um, one of my mother's favorites. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can just see it. You know, I have aunties that would say that as well. Right? Yes. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, and it's true because we find that we have so many talking heads and they yeah. want to move their mouths and, and, and exhaust air, but mm-hmm. there's just nothing behind it. So yes, it is very, yeah. the cost, yeah. what, what costs money is doing something. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's worthwhile. Okay, cool. Tell us more about how humanitarian assistance works, like in terms of, in your, in the context of what you, how your, your work evolved in, in prior to NDI. Tell us more about that. So I, I, I would say, again, very much conscious of the fact that my work in humanitarian assistance was uh, quite a, a while ago. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there have been um, changes in terms of how the the sector functions today. Mm-hmm. But I would say that in general terms, the difference between humanitarian assistance and some of the work that I do at NDI, although increasingly those there's some um, overlap there, is that yeah. in terms of humanitarian, um, the, some of the humanitarian assistance that programs that I worked on, it was basically came down to there's a crisis of some sort of some sort. Mm-hmm. People need some sort of service or commodity, mm-hmm. and our job is to get that to them as fast Mm -hmm. as we can. Mm -hmm. Whether that was medical supplies Mm -hmm. that could be provided to clinics and hospitals, Mm -hmm. whether that was a school feeding program um, and supporting that, although I think that obviously happens in countries that aren't in major crisis um, Mm -hmm. as we know it. Mm -hmm. Or even things like providing support for services like water and sanitation. Um, Mm -hmm. I had colleagues at the time who were working um, on projects to support reconstruction of housing um, in the aftermath of the war in Bosnia, um, Herzegovina. Mm -hmm. I worked um, on a program that was basically designed to provide sanitation um, services to fill gaps in the system in Sierra Leone um, mm-hmm. in, you know, as a, um, as a result of the war. Yeah. yeah. Um, in terms of my work at NDI, I think that that is less about providing commodities or services. It's yeah. more about helping our partners strengthen how politics functions in their own country. Mm-hmm. But I would say, and also to share, to exchange lessons learned and experiences with others in um, countries that are going through similar things. But I will say that there is some overlap there because um, over the past uh, few years at NDI, we've done things like work with some of our partners to gather information about how COVID is impacting different communities, Mm -hmm. to push out information on where people can get help, to raise questions um, in parliament about what the needs are. Mm -hmm. When earthquakes um, happened in in Haiti, we did similar work in terms of working with our partners to collect information on the impact of the earthquake, to push out information Mm -hmm. on what the government was was doing, Mm -hmm. and to to um, also provide oversight, whether it was by civil society or parliament, in terms of how the government was spending different resources that had been provided to assist with the with the response. Got it. Got it. And so, when you're when you're looking at the impact 
that you're able to to cultivate in these projects that you're working on, how are you actually measuring it? Because just, yeah, straight, what are, what are kind of the metrics that you all use to measure impact, particularly working with political parties and then whatever the outcomes are of the engagements that you're working with them? Mm-hmm. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a sliding scale depending on um, how the program um, is, envi- is, is envisaged and what the operating context is. Mm-hmm. But I would also say that some of this, I think, ties back to your question about countries that have succeeded at overcoming mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. tribalism, I think, for mm-hmm. lack of a, a, a better word, because I think you can put together, you can put in place legislation, you know, can people can have the skills and training. But I think ultimately, these things don't change unless behavior changes. And mm-hmm. some of that takes a very um, long time. Mm-hmm. And when conditions change, there can be some backsliding, I think, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I would say that at the most basic level, um, in terms of how we measure impact, we're looking for changes in the capacity of whoever it is we're working with. So mm-hmm. changes in capacity of civil civic activists or even political leaders or um, elected representatives, whoever it is um, we're, we're, we're working with. Mm-hmm. Changes that allow them to play a more active or enhanced role in the politics of their of their country and that enhances their ability to exercise their agency. Mm. I think another level is what I would call a somewhat systems change. And that could be something broader, like is a new, is a policy changed, is a particular legislation changed. But I I would say that even then, that's, even that is a pretty uh, lofty result. I think because there's so much that goes into um, what legislation is considered, who votes for it, who does not go for it, and then it actually being adopted. Mm-hmm. But I think that 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 would be sort of um, the next level in terms of some kind of practice or process that is then changed, um, not just sort of somebody knows how to do something differently or better than they do it before, or they have certain information that they did not have before. Mm-hmm. I would say that probably sort of a third and even loftier impact that we aim for, but that I think is very much, again, long term um, and is influenced by factors which are often beyond our control is, you know, what I would call behavioral or sociocultural change. Um, and so whether it's around issues of, say, women's political participation, right? So the first step, obviously, is that to the extent that they need that, women who do want to be more active in politics have the skills and information they need to do that. A next level would be, is their political party or legislature or other organization more open to them? Are they finding or opportunities being created for, for them? And then obviously, super long term, we're not even there, even in the United States and other countries that have been democracies for way longer, are women are, you know, is our political processes um, equally inclusive of people regardless of gender um, right. in this particular um, example? Right, right. So I think about, you know, affiliations with political parties and and how I feel somehow that the the draw to be a part of a political party is eroding. So when I look at my, my young um, nieces and nephews and the adolescents that I work with, in Ghana in particular, 
you know, they may say they're part of a party because that's what their parents chose, right? Mm -hmm. Not necessarily because they've read and really understand what this party stands for. It's because they like this one because they might be younger or look younger or, or sexier or for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. So where do you see the political party or what are some of the techniques that are necessary to engage with the the youth? You know, we know Mm -hmm. that those people who are under 30, are they making informed decisions? How can they be better citizens? And are, are parties the way that they're going to be able to do it? And how can parties do that? Okay, so that's a great question and actually very relevant to a project that I'm working on with some colleagues right now. I mean, I I, I, I think the first thing I would say is that there is definitely, I think, um, a, a conversation that is happening right now about political parties all over the world. Mm-hmm. There are those who would say that political parties have outlived their usefulness and are on the verge of distinction. I tend to disagree, and not just because my job involves working on um, political um, parties. Yeah, but I, I, but and then I think that there are those who say, okay, we do need something like political parties, but we need a bit of a rethink on um, some of the things that they they do um, mm-hmm. and how they engage and work with citizens. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think all that to say that political parties have had various problems for um, a long time in different parts of the world. But I do think that there's there definitely seems to be something happening right now and not just with young people. Mm -hmm. So I think the first thing is that one of the questions that um, we're exploring at NDI is the fact that, as you mentioned, in a lot of countries and not just in um, Ghana, young people aren't interested in joining a political um, party. Yeah. And so the question we're exploring is, well, what does that mean for the kind of work that we do and how we design our programs? If young people have no interest in joining a political party, even some of the political parties that are doing a better job of being inclusive and responsive to citizens, then that probably involves different calculations in terms of the focus of our programs, right? So if, for example, you're implementing a program with the goal of helping political parties improve their recruitment efforts, that's only going to go so far because the majority of young people aren't really interested in joining political parties and they're looking for a different type of engagement. Mm -hmm. Um, And often it's a more informal engagement They want something that's a little bit more fluid, not so structured, and they may be more, young people may be more interested in engaging on the very specific issues that affect their lives. Mm -hmm. So along with um, a number of colleagues, this is an area that we're um, exploring. We've been doing some case study research on some of the innovative ways in which political parties and young people have been able to bridge that gap to collaborate on issues in in meaningful ways, because our uh, thesis or assumption is that political parties may change and may look different, but they're not going, they aren't on the verge of of extinction. If elections will continue to happen in um, most countries, if for the most part contestants in elections are political parties who will take up the reins of government, young people obviously have the right to protest and to um, mobilize on um, social media. But if those connections aren't being made and those relationships aren't being developed, then young people are being left out um, Mm -hmm. of the process. So it's, you know, how do you, what are some of the ways in which 
groups like NDI can foster that collaboration while recognizing that there are legitimate reasons why young people may not want to join political political parties. I mean, I think another piece of this is that the whole premise of NDI's work is to support political party systems that provide citizens with choice and choices that enable them to participate in their country's political life and to influence the way politics um, is, is conducted. So for pretty much since NDI's founding, we have been working in different ways to support political parties to move closer to the citizens they're supposed to represent, um, so to speak. Right. What I'm understanding is that democracy requires parties. That's what I believe, and that is what NDI um, um, believes. And I think the reason being that Elections are part of a a democracy and you need um, contestants Mm -hmm. because that's part of choice. Now, you might say, well, what if we just choose between individuals and we don't choose between um, political parties? I think that there are some examples of where where that has been um, tried before and it hasn't really worked. Okay. So then you go to, okay, so let's just say we we elect a bunch of individuals and we, quote unquote, throw them um, into parliament. Mm -hmm. So let's say there's 200 random individuals, random in the sense that they're not affiliated in parliament and they have to somehow make things work for the country. Got it. The individuals who have like-minded ideas about what the solutions are, are going to have to coordinate. Yes. That's basically what a political party is supposed to be. So, I mean, I, I understand that Citizens all over the world are frustrated with their political parties, but that's what a political party is. So for me, it's about how do we get better party systems and how do we get better parties that are supposed to do the things that political parties were supposed to do? Mm-hmm. I think getting rid of political parties would likely just end up, as, would likely lead us to something else that is called by a different name, but is basically a political party. Okay. Okay. Right. Because ultimately the way of moving people is through coalition and the collaboration of ideas. So that's- Well, yeah. I mean, I think, um, imagine a legislature of say 200 people Mm -hmm. of individuals who don't know each other. They don't know what the other supports, what they don't support. And somehow they have to Make the country work. Right. I mean, there, there's some kind of coordination that yes. they're going to have to come up with. Yes. And they're going to have to kind of group themselves in terms of those who were, I don't know, in favor of agricultural subsidies versus sure. something else. Sure. Those who are in favor of privatizing healthcare versus not. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think that that's basically, um, and I think, you know, we can also talk about, okay, well, in the internet age, what if we all just voted on every single issue? And I'm like, really, are we all going to be walking the streets of Accra, DC, wherever, voting on mm-hmm. every single proposition, how many times a day? Right. Um, and I think also that we are seeing that as complicated as the world was before, it's getting even more complicated mm-hmm. and it's difficult to address complicated issues in a referendum. Right. So yeah. you need some yeah. kind of deliberative sure. process. Yeah. 
there's some interesting work that is going on in terms of finding new ways of representation, citizen participation, Mm -hmm. including citizen assemblies. Mm -hmm. But for now, I'm struggling a little bit to envisage democracy and governance without political parties. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I get it. It it does make a lot of sense. the, The ways of, you know, having a party to come together for that structure, it kind of shortens the timeline that it takes, right? Because you've Mm -hmm. already come together and you have a basic platform of things that you all agree on. So from there, you just Mm -hmm. build on that. So I think the disillusionment has been, are we really all on the same page or not on the same page? So- and I think also what we what we see in here in political science theory isn't really how things are working mm-hmm. um, in practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of course. <laughs> so think, thinking of practice, let me ask you my mindset hack question. So what is your favorite or an innovative mindset hack? One that you can imagine or one that you know of? Um, so this was a question that I, I, again, had to spend a lot of time um, thinking about. And I, I have to say that it's travel for me. Ah, um, and now, of course, you know, travel when you're doing it on your own dime costs money. Um, yeah. If you're thinking about travel beyond your own local environment. Yeah. But travel is a big one for me. Um, but I will say that sometimes that literally involves getting on a plane. Mm-hmm. But I think that there are other ways in which I mentally travel without mm-hmm. leaving home or the office. So mm-hmm. I read um, a lot, not as much as I used to, but I um, one of the things I love about reading is that by picking up a good book, you can feel like you mm-hmm. are at mm-hmm. a wedding in India, yeah. even if you've never been. Yeah. I When we were still working in the office each year, I had a ritual of picking out account a wall calendar of uh tropical beaches if i couldn't find a good beach calendar i would get one of some country or part of the world that i wanted to visit yeah a lot of my um instagram feed is really travel accounts um and i think food is also another way in which i travel without really Mm. leaving home Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. not so so speaking of travel we we know you travel for work and have traveled in your lives so tell us where one of your favorite actual destinations has been? I can't pick one. Oh no! I can't. It depends so much on my on my on my mood and mm-hmm. and why I'm traveling. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things I have realized about personal travel for me is that I need to tailor my travel to my mood. Mm-hmm. And so there are trips I go on where I know that I will feel more pressure to get out and see things, whether it's museums or historical sites um, or anything of that. But there are also times where I want to go on vacation just to lie on a beach and be okay with the fact that I'm only going to do one cultural or historical thing. Yeah. That said, I do have to make a shameless plug for, for Ghana. And I would say that, you know, Accra is a, a great city, but also some of our most interesting and best cultural sites are actually outside Accra. Yeah, so exactly. when you're planning your Ghana trip, make sure that you include some, some time that'll get you outside Accra. Yeah, I second that 100% because I was just actually having that conversation today with someone. They're like, oh, you live, you know, in the tropics and what happened. I'm like, yeah, Accra is, is nice, but I, I love Ghana more when I leave mm-hmm. Accra. Mm-hmm. And it's really, that's where you truly see the beauty. Like you truly see the land, you see the people, you see just everything where it's not all about the hustle. And so I agree right. with you most definitely. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. Nice. Okay. So you kind of hit on another, you know, question about like who, who is Seth when she's not working and working with political parties mm-hmm. and so tell us, are you, you said you're a little bit of a reader, but are you more of a reader, a watcher or a listener? Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to come across as so, um, indecisive. I think it, <laughs> it, it, it depends. Okay. I have, I, I will be honest. It, um, apart from this amazing podcast, I have struggled with podcasts. All my friends tell me that I need to do more of this. And I've listened to a, a few, um, podcast episodes, um, here and there, and I've, I've, uh-huh. um, yours, um, and others, and I've enjoyed them, yeah. but it's not something that I really have a routine for. Okay. I, as I mentioned, I do read um, a lot for mm-hmm. for for pleasure. Uh-huh. I have, for reasons that I haven't quite yet figured out, struggled um, a bit more with reading um, during the pandemic. Mm. But I've always loved to to read, and um, I suspect that that's why I'm I'm short sighted. But that may not be um, scientific. <laughs> um, probably ruined my eyes uh, reading too much. <laughs> um, I. I am um, a watcher okay. in terms of um, streaming and that sort of um, okay. thing. And yeah, uh, I have a slightly disturbing tendencies <laughs> there um, in terms of um, tending to uh, tending to favor really dark psychological tell stuff. Us more. So tell us some of your so at least one or two of your favorite favorite watches. So streams. So this is. Um, yeah, I probably shouldn't make this public, but it's too late. <laughs> so one of my all-time favorite movies from years and years ago is called The Piano. Oh, I like that. was a nice And movie. Yeah. I didn't, and I, I, I thought it was an amazing um, movie, beautifully shot, exactly. wonderful story, incredible yeah. acting. But I realized that I talked about that more and more. Even close friends were looking at me funny and they were like, but you know what happens, right? I'm like, yeah, of course I know. I've seen the movie. I've seen it multiple times. And, you know, for those who haven't yet seen it, I, I probably shouldn't give it away, although it is an old movie. Yeah. Um, and so should I tell them how it ends? No, um, it's so, fine. It's fine. So, so it ends up with um, a woman um, having her um, hand chopped off by her husband. Her marriage um, falls apart. She contemplates suicide, but ends up deciding to, to live. And it does it does end happily. But um, the more I told people about that, the more they would just look at me and be like, you do realize what happens in that stuff. That's really dark. That's really depressing. I do also like um, murder mysteries from mm-hmm. the lighter police procedural to um, more intense stuff that, mm-hmm. you know, messes with your mind a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of British police, um, yeah. procedurals and, um, some American, but I would say British yeah. more than, more than, um, more than anything else. Yeah. I it's at the point where, you know, my cousin sent a text and was like, you know, does anyone have any recommendations for TV shows? Seth, don't bother because all your stuff is dark. <laughs> so... <laughs> But yeah, I I feel you on that because I'm a masterpiece fan. So the British yeah. procedurals and all that, I definitely from a young yeah. age that was like our Sunday nights at home. So, right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're an avid reader, so give us a couple of titles that we could share. One of my um, all-time favorite books is A Suitable Boy, which is uh, quite old now by Vikram um, Seth. 
mm-hmm. um, set in India. And I think it's it's a huge book. So mm-hmm. if you for those of you who want to read it, use your Kindle because unless you want to practice weights. Right. Um, right. Um, I also um love pretty much everything that Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie has written. But of all her books, I would say that I, I thought Purple Hibiscus was mm-hmm. the best. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have also enjoyed Imbolo Mbwe's writing. Mm-hmm. I recently finished um, her newest book, which is How Beautiful We Were. Mm-hmm. And I'm still processing um, that, but I enjoyed, uh, but I enjoyed the writing. Okay, that's next on my list. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so, uh, yeah. So I have to compare notes then. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, those are great, good ones. Again, really great show notes for you folks. So, Seth, it's been so lovely having you. I love this conversation. I definitely want to continue it, and I've I've been hinting at this on a lot of my um, conversations that at some point I would like to get panels people together to solutionscape because what you said about unpacking complicated issues is something that. I find that we're we're somewhat reluctant to do as ourselves, you know, like mm-hmm. put in our jobs and all those things. But I feel like the more we kind of get together, because someone wrote me into watching The Circle, mm-hmm. and that's a Netflix show. And mm-hmm. and what brought to mind about political parties is that it's human nature actually to come together to co- you know, to build these coalitions to then garner leadership. So it's not something that's foreign. So something as basic as you know, these people in this circle environment coming together and creating these coalitions so that they can, you know, move towards the top to be leaders Mm -hmm. is is something that's very, very there. And so in that same context, I would love to have people come together on the podcast to have conversations that produce ideas and thoughts that might trickle up to organizations that they work for or even Mm -hmm. political organizations. So I hope the door is open for that in another time. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And any last words for our listeners? I think uh, just that I've I've really um, enjoyed the the discussion. Um, I think that while I, I'm very much aware of you know some of my own blind sides, given that the theme for the podcast is uh, global citizens. I mean, I think I growing up in different parts of the world has really benefited me in so many different ways, and I think probably in ways in which I'm not even um, conscious of. I'm definitely conscious of some of them, but I think that there's probably even more there that I haven't even begun to fully understand. And I think part of the reasons why travel is such a mindset hack for me is that it really gives you perspective, Yes, um, Yes. including on yourself. I learn more about myself by traveling that I have about the places that I have visited. Nice. Nice. That's good. Great. Wonderful. Last thoughts. All right, local citizens, this has been another episode of the podcast. You can catch us each and every Tuesday with a new episode at www.glocalcitizenspod.com and wherever you get your podcasts. That's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, Uh, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast, you can find us. So share, like, subscribe, leave us a comment. It helps others find the podcast. And until next time, bye for now.